Paul presses on. He begins to wander the streets of this little town that he's arrived in in Greece called Athens. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Remember what I said earlier? Remember Deuteronomy 32? God said, you have provoked me to jealousy. God said to the people of Israel. Now Paul likewise is provoked in his spirit. As he wanders through these streets looking around there in Athens, the city full of idols. Now there is in every human being from from birth upward an innate intrinsic desire to worship. You Bible students know this. We've talked about it. We are created to worship like fish to water, air to birds. We are... We are most content, we are most at home, we are most ourselves when we are worshiping God. All is right with the world and eternity when we worship. Humanity was made for it. But if you don't worship God, you are going to worship something or someone. It's just the way it is. And Athens is an example of that like Babylon before it. Athens was a city that was full of it. Full of idols. And what's amazing is it blows Paul's mind. It's provoking his spirit. He's walking around. He's looking at all these idols. This is a a Jew truly, but born in Gentile-dominated Tarsus. And yet the blatancy of idolatry here was absolutely, breathtakingly epic. Athens had temples and shrines to more than 3,000 deities. You name it, they had a god for it. For the partier, Bacchus. He's your god. For the promiscuous, Aphrodite. She's your god. Your goddess. For the power player, there was always Zeus. In fact, the statue to Zeus still remains to this day in Athens. Some of you will see it this spring when we go to Israel and stop off at Athens on the way home. The statue to Zeus is called the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Stupid. It's a statue for crying out loud. What's wonderful about that? Cold, unseeing eyes. A stony heart, an inability to do anything for you or with you, cannot even travel outside of Athens. He's stuck there. We got to go see him. <laughs> and Paul was provoked. You might say he was fired up. What is it that provokes you? Starbucks cups? <laughs> That's stupid. But but they took the reindeer off. It's a war on Christmas. What? Because they took the reindeer off the cups? Because this year, pagan Starbucks decided to go without symbols? I mean, that's what I call a pagan's prerogative. They can do whatever they want. The cups are still red. Merry Christmas. Starbucks never claimed to be a Christian organization in the first place. I don't get my Starbucks coffee because they're Christian. I get it for the caffeine. Come on, let's be honest. 
Paul is provoked. He's stirred up about a real issue, not about a bunch of paper cups. He's provoked like Moses was. Exodus 32.19 Moses' heart burned when he saw the golden calf. He was furious. Or like Phineas. Numbers 25. You may recall the story. When Phineas was there with Moses and the leaders of Israel and they're weeping and they're, they're torn up because all the men of Israel are going out to the pagan women. And then a man of Israel brings, a, 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 is it a Midianite or a Moabite? It's one of the ins, one of the ites. But he brings an ite woman with him into his tent right in full view of everyone. And Phineas is provoked, jumps up, grabs a spear, runs into the tent and shish kebabs them. Sin kebab. <laughs> Spears him through. Phineas was provoked. Eliphaz was provoked. Job 32, verse 2. The one friend of Job, that young man, I like Eliphaz. He shows up. And he is provoked when Job tries to justify himself before God. And Eliphaz says, Really? You're going to justify yourself before the just and righteous God? What about Jesus? John chapter 2, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. Jesus was provoked when He saw His Father's house turned into a den of robbers. And He fulfilled Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Listen to that. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's something that is provoking. I was a kid in elementary school. Third, fourth grade. And someone took my last name, Crawford... And changed the last half of my last name, Crawford, to be Croft, and, and it rhymes with art. <laughs> Don't you do it. <laughs> no, it's not Croft-Tart. <laughs> Although that would, that would be good. No. And I was provoked. You know why? I don't know why on that particular day, in that particular moment, but I was provoked. And I said this to the kid who called me that. I had tears in my eyes, steaming hot tears as I said, that's my dad's name. And I was angry. He called me names, make all kinds of fun out of my name, but, but not, not my last name because that's my dad's name. Jesus says, this is my father's house. And the reproaches. That have fallen upon you, Lord, they have fallen upon me. That's something worth being provoked over. Someone's offending our God, our Lord Jesus, man, that is provoking. What provokes you? What stirs you up? And I ask the question because what provokes the mind, looking at Paul here who is provoked, what provokes the mind reveals what's going on in the heart. And for Paul... He is stirred up. He is provoked by the proliferation of paganism in Athens. Why? Does he fear it might ruin his Christmas? Is Paul provoked because he's now jealous like the Jews? Well, what chance does Christianity have with all these pagan idols? Is he provoked 
Because he's afraid he might lose the debate? No. No, Paul is provoked because what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Paul is provoked by the lies, by the deception, by the lostness of this city, and it breaks his heart. And it angers him with a holy anger, just as foul stuff on TV ought to provoke you and me. Just as sin ought to provoke us when we look at people who are held captive by it, who don't even know it, that should provoke us. So how did Paul deal with this? Did he boycott Bacchus? Stage a protest rally at the temple of Aphrodite? We'll show those pagans. Verse 17. He was reasoning. Here we go again in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Paul's reaction to this pagan provocation, he reasoned with the gospel, both in the synagogue and on the streets. The synagogue was the closest thing to the church that Paul had to go to. In the first century, at least in the synagogue, as I said before, there were believers there. Believers in the Hebrew Scriptures. Believers in Yahweh. Believers in the one true God. They didn't yet fully understand Jesus, but they had a foundation of belief that was pointing that direction. And so he started there. And I think we continue to need to preach the gospel in the church. We have a basic foundation among us, don't we? But we also still have a lot of confusion that's built up over 2,000 years. A a lot of wrong-headed ideas. And the way you deal with those is you reason from the Scriptures. You teach the Word. You gather together in the Word of God. And Paul did that in the synagogue and out on the street. Which means he was bringing truth both to the church and to culture. And I think God would call us to do the same thing. We need to continue to bring truth to the church as well as to the culture. Verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Well, they're obviously open to hearing what he has to say. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was, note this, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Epicureans and Stoics. For the Epicureans, their God was pleasure. The Epicurean would say, have a good time. The Epicurean was the life of the party. You wanted to invite them over if you were having a celebration. But not the Stoic. They were a drag. The Stoic, their God was discipline. Their view of life, hang in there. They were all about self-control. In other words, boring. If I was going to be pagan, I would not choose Stoicism, my friends. I would be an Epicurean or uh, some kind of wild, out-of-control dude. Have some fun, at least, for crying out loud. But here's the thing. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics, like people today, in fact, we have both in our world today. Those who think by living the good life, the solid life, the disciplined life, they're good enough. And those who just want to party. 
just want to have a good time. You know, it doesn't matter what's coming, just live for now. And that's the issue. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics rejected the resurrection for the here and now. For them it was all about now. There is no then, just now. Paul would later write to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 1.22, he says, Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. We preach Christ. Jesus was and is so different than anything the world has to offer. And the church is at fault, is remiss, when we try to offer things like the world. Seminars for the happy life. That is not our mission. That is not our message. It is not our calling. Our mission, our message, and our calling is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is completely different. He's absolutely holy. There is no one and nothing like Him in the world today. So much greater than all the things people worship. You know, musicians, celebrities, stars, who always let us down. World leaders who always disappoint. And yet Jesus never does. So Paul is reasoning. He's dealing now with some of the philosophers and in verse 19 it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. The Areopagus. Mars Hill. Or Ares Hill. Areopagus, Ares the god of war. Mars the god of war. And this hill rose up right there in the middle of Athens, 337 feet in elevation. And it had become the seat of the high-minded. The debaters of religion and politics and philosophy, all there at Mars Hill. In earlier days, it was the seat of government for Greece, but now that Rome had taken over and had spread out, it was now the place of deliberation without determination or questions without answers watch this the next verse verse 21 now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new what's the buzz what's the latest what's on the front page and they would discuss these things and debate these things and think about these things and come to no conclusion whatsoever And it reminds me of what Paul said would happen. See, he said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Welcome to Athens. You might say, but wait a minute. Paul is saying the time will come. But he'd already been to Athens, and Athens was obviously already an ear-tickling mess. So what's he talking about? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's talking about the church. We've always had ear-tickling cultures. 
It has from day one been the nature of man to gather people around us who agree with us or make us feel good or tell us what we want to hear. But Paul said, you're going to know you are in the last days when that's going on in the church. When churches will gather and will abdicate sound doctrine for things that (laughs) just make them feel good. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the middle of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, I told you when we began, this sermon is considered to be absolutely brilliant. It is, in in even the Greek language used by Paul in this sermon, is upper echelon, top-notch, best Greek. And the way he formulates the thoughts and moves through the sermon, this is still the epitome of practical preaching in many seminaries today. It's the go-to passage. You want to learn to preach? Preach like Paul does in Acts 17. It is brilliant. It is polished. It is culturally relevant. And it's my least favorite of all of Paul's sermons. Personally. My opinion. It's also one of the least effective. Watch this. The sermon breaks down into five parts. Five parts, Rick. We've been here an hour. I know, but I told you. I'm done with my teaching. This is all on Paul now. Five parts, quickly. Paul first begins with the Creator God. As he lays out his case, as he reasons with them intelligently, the Creator God, verse 24, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Creator God. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands as Paul probably gestures to the Parthenon. The temple of Zeus. Standing magnificently there in Athens. 270 feet long. 170 feet wide. 60 feet high. With 40, count them, 40 high marble towers. The temple of Zeus. But stone cold empty. And Paul says, he doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands. No doubt, Paul's thinking kippah is on. His Hebrew mind is buzzing with biblical truth. After all, Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. Paul's thinking, I'm going to start with creation. The Creator God. Let's lay it out. Let's get them where their faith is. They believe that Zeus is their highest God. Let me tell you, Zeus Zeus doesn't even come close. God is too big to dwell in something like this. Later, Paul will write to the church at Colossae. Chapter 1, verse 16. By Him all things are created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Who's He talking about in Colossians chapter 1? Christ. 
And Paul uh, very deftly brings it right back to Jesus as he's talking to the church in Colossae. The Apostle John starts a very similar Greek-minded argument saying in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in verse 3 he says, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. He is Creator God. And John is talking about Jesus. And before you get out of John chapter 1, he names Jesus. He brings you to Jesus. Paul's talking about Jesus as well, but Paul never once in this sermon calls Him by name. He alludes to Him. But he never calls out the name Jesus. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The benefactor God. Part one, the creator God. Part two, the benefactor God. Now again, this is completely true. It is sound biblical doctrine. It is good reasoning. Psalm 65 verse 9 says you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty. That's a great Thanksgiving verse, by the way. All about God's provision. The benefactor God. And you know, James 1.17 tells us every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He is our benefactor. Jesus said He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun to shine on the just and the unjust. We're all blessed by His great beneficence. It is sound teaching. And Paul continues on in verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. By the way, He's flying in the face of Athenian thought. See, the people of Athens, especially those who were born and raised there, believed that they were created there. That they were different than all the rest of the people on earth because Athens was their, not just their birthplace, but it was the beginning of the creation of the Athenians. And so they were uniquely created there. And so Paul says, <laughs> new. He made from one man every nation of mankind. We all have the same source. We all come from the same place, he's saying, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. The governor God. Creator God. Benefactor God. Governor God. He's governed, He's set the boundaries, He's placed us where we need to be, He's the one overseeing all of this. Paul says, if in fact we might grope for Him. I don't like that. Now, Rick, it's Scripture, I understand that. I get it. But I also know what Paul is attempting to do here. He is trying to meet the people where they are. He's trying to speak their language. And he says, if in fact we might grope, well that's philosophical thought. The word grope there in the Greek is salafao. 
That's why, and we might salafao, and it means literally to reach for or to feel around for as if in the dark. And what Paul's doing here is he's appealing to, again, their philosophical sense of groping, of seeking, the Greeks seek for wisdom. Looking for answers, but never being content having found answers. They're just always in the groping phase, like, like Plato's allegory of the cave. If you've ever read that, about how Plato's view of how we get educated and how we learn things, and, and he speaks of, of a cave, and basically we see shadows on the walls, and by the shadows we start to learn and, and understand truth is elusive as the shadows that was a favorite story of mine in high school I thought that's cool but what is this blind man's bluff does that sound consistent with the nature and character of God that he would put us all this on this planet turn off the lights and say good luck finding me put a little blindfold on spin us around a few times go for it if in fact we might grope Again, I get that Paul is developing an argument and speaking to the Athenians in their lingo. But Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me and I will raise him up on the last day. Which means, at a minimum, God is saying, Polo! Marco, Polo! No, it's more than that. It's not that God is hiding out and tricking us and dodging us and... No, He's drawing us. He's bringing us in. He's pulling us toward Himself. And the only thing, listen, the only thing that stops that drawing is when we push back. That's not groping, that's pushing. If you are open to the Father, He will draw you to Himself. Paul later would even say to the church at Rome, chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You're not groping. You're pushing if you're not receiving the Lord Jesus. The Creator God. The benefactor God, the governor God, number four, the father God, verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now it's absolutely true. He's quoting their philosophers, Epimenides. Epimenides who said, In thee we live and move and exist. And Aratus. Aratus said, For we are all his offspring. Of course, there's a little problem because Aratus was talking about Zeus. So Paul's making almost a comparison to Zeus here. Okay, here's the thing. This is what I call banana theology. Paul is trying to appeal. <laughs> you can take that to any seminary in the country, and they will no doubt accept you as very learned. 
Banana theology. He's trying to appeal to the Athenians. He's trying to speak their language, to get at them where they're at, to meet them where they are. I mean, you could say we're all God's children, as Paul does right here, in that, yes, we are all formed by one Creator in His image. But gang, that does not automatically make us His children eternally. We are not all God's children eternally. To be an eternal child of God, you must be born again. You must be born again. As John writes in John 1 verse 12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Now again, Paul is not wrong per se. He's trying to build a case, trying to appeal to their sensibilities. But this is as brilliant and articulate a sermon as this is. As eloquent as Paul is being right here, it is a seeker-sensitive sermon. I would hold this up as the highest example of a good seeker-sensitive sermon in the Scriptures. But it's a slippery slope. Banana theology. Okay? And I think my opinion, just my opinion, feel free to disagree, but I think it's a weak position from which to preach the Gospel. I'm not a seeker-sensitive pastor. Maybe you picked up on that. (laughs) And it's not that I would push people away. Far from it. It's just that I believe that the name of Jesus is what needs to be spoken and heard. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, clearly and without bias, needs to be preached. That the scriptures need to be laid out there. Whether you're a brand new believer or a long-time believer, we need the word of God to bring us to faith in God. Trust in the Lord. And finally here at the end, Paul starts getting to the point. That is the person, number five, fifth and final point, the Savior God. The Savior God. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus, just say the name, Paul. But he doesn't. I don't know why. If I say Jesus, it'll be too much for him. Takes him right up to the resurrection. He, he, He describes the judgment that is coming and he is right on. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, Paul says, preach the word. Why is Paul so strong on that when he writes to Timothy? Because he's learning it himself. You preach the word. Nothing else works. The Creator... Benefactor, governor, father, savior. Hey, great sermon, except that not once does Paul speak the name of Jesus. And in that, trying to meet the Athenians where they are, in my humble opinion, any sermon that leaves out his great name is no great sermon. And Paul himself will realize it 
profoundly. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. That's what they did. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Why are just two people named here? I think for two reasons. One is it shows the reach of the gospel. Dionysius is an Areopagite. The Areopagites were the intellectual elites of the day. These were the highest of the high-minded. These were the pontificating professors. These were looked at by others as, okay, these are the PhDs and, and the, you know, those who hold highest degree. These are smart guys, the Areopagites. And Dionysius believes. So, before we completely cast out all the seeker-sensitive churches, hey, if someone is reached for Jesus, praise the Lord. This guy was. Because Paul spoke his intellectual language, so that's good. What about Damaris, the woman? Interesting, in Greek culture, no proper woman would be found in a public gathering of men like this, unless she was a working woman. I think you know the job to which I am implying. And she was there because the men were there. And yet, Damaris believes. Look at the reach of the gospel. The highest mind and the lowest profession, both are salvageable. Both are savable by Jesus Christ. I think there's another reality here as you read verse 34. What Scripture implies is that few believed. There weren't really many that came out of this. And as a matter of fact... There would be no church in Athens. We never hear of a church in Athens, not in the New Testament, not in the Scriptures. Paul didn't plant a church there. There wasn't enough interest. A few believed. Listen, as a pastor teacher, it is tempting to tickle ears. I'll be honest with you. If I can get Debbie to laugh... It makes my night. And it's not hard to do. (laughs) To be funny, you know, or newsworthy, or cutting edge, it's tempting. And I'm not even saying it's all bad, but the real issue in the teaching of the gospel is this. Have we come to Jesus? Have we preached Jesus? Have we drawn near to Jesus? His great name. Now watch this. I'm almost done. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Turn over to Second, First uh, Corinthians, chapter 2. You see, I want you to see this. When when Paul left Athens, he left somewhat a failure. He hadn't planted a church. He hadn't started a movement there. He had in Thessalonica. Uh, Berea was well went well. Philippi had, had gone well. I mean he, had, he was beaten and kicked out, but there's a church there. Persecution, no problem. 
Paul would take all the beatings and whippings and stonings you can hand him as long as he could affect lives and see people saved with the gospel. Praise the Lord, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, nothing. So he leaves Athens a failure, at least by the standard of the mission. He arrives at Corinth, and when he arrives there, he comes with a very different spirit. Watch this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, you might say Paul learned, <laughs> I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Contrast that with the Areopagus where He was with them in much wisdom and high-minded philosophical speech. And He says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom when He came to Corinth, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And at Corinth, as we will see when we get into Acts 18, Paul planted a strong church, a wild church, a nutty out of control church, but a strong church nonetheless that would weather even the most scathing of Paul's letters. The church at Corinth was begun Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, but no church in Athens. You know what I love about Paul? For all of the successes, the failures, the victories, the defeats, for every reception, for every rejection, for all the persecutions, Paul presses on. He doesn't quit. He keeps going. May we do the same. Amen. Father, may we press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. May we, like Paul, be able to say, forgetting what lies behind, we, we press on to what is ahead. May we, Lord, receive Your grace when we fail miserably. We have, we will, we know that. But may we press on anyway. And when the world opposes us, may we press on. And Father, may we never, ever leave out or undermine the most precious name given by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. We press on, Lord Jesus, for Your sake, for Your Gospel, and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You done good. God bless you all.